Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Carlos, if we haven't met, and I get to be one of your pastors, and it truly is a joy. As we continue in this new season, we are calling chapter 32, we began this talks that we have named rerouting. We could have named them anything else, but we felt like rerouting was a good word that just captures when God takes us to unexpected places. And those of us who know that uh, that God is a God of relationship and he calls us into things that are far way better than we could ever plan for ourselves. How many of you have experienced that? And so we're going to continue and we're going to end this conversation. Uh, But before we jump into today, can I just tell you about next week? (laughs) Next week we have the pleasure of hearing from Pastor Natalia. Pastor Natalia is traveling right now. She must be on a plane from Guatemala. The Guatemala team is coming back today. We're praying for safe travels. But she's going to have a lot of stories. And so come back next week. We have one service again at 10 a.m. so that you can hear all that God did in Guatemala and truly hear a message that captures the heart for Evergreen's desire to be generous here, near, and far. And so we invite you to come back next week. The title of today's message is Rerouting to Rest. Rerouting to Rest. And we're going to be looking at the story of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 15 and 16. But we're going to narrow in on a few verses beginning in in Exodus 16 starting in verse 22. We'll have it up on the screen for your reading Pleasure. It says this On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left over and keep it. Until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath of the Lord, to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath. There will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you, and that you in the original language is plural, so how long will the people refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Everyone say rested. And so if you've never heard this story, it's important to know context. But more important than that, I'd love for us to just begin with a collective understanding of what God is doing during this time of human history. I believe what God is doing is he is reestablishing a relationship with his people. 
And so in order for him to reestablish a relationship, he is teaching new ways of being, new ways of relating that will produce a new way of life for his people. And so um, in this grand scheme of restoring a relationship with humanity, the first task that we pick up at the beginning of the Exodus story is that God was committed to liberating from actual slavery his people. We know that the people had been enslaved for 430 years, and so God's first task was to liberate them from the Egyptians. And how did he do this? He did this by showing power and might. We read about the famous 10 plagues. We learned about the splitting of the sea. And so God was mighty in his rescue for his people. But that was just the beginning. Because God's next task was, would be one of um, familiar with anyone who's an outdoorsman or outdoors person. And that's that you need to have your basic needs met. And what, what, do, we, what do we think of when we think of basic needs? Uh, shelter, food, and water. It's not football, by the way, guys. It's not football. I know some of you consider it, and you try to make that argument. Football is important, but it's not a basic need. And so, so God is, he is going to meet their essential needs, and specifically food and water. And these arise fairly quickly. If you read at the end of Exodus 15, you see that it only took three days for them to be in need. It said that God led them or Moses led them to a place with undrinkable water. This made me think of the days when I was uh, doing my thing at recess on a hot day in California, and I ran for a sip of water, and the water fountain did not work. How, how, that's torment, <laughs> right? When you're thirsty and you can't drink. And so these people, they start to grumble, right? They start to grumble, and so God, he has, a, he has an interesting fix. He says, Moses, grab that tree, toss it in the water. And I can't explain it, but guys, this water becomes sweet. It becomes as sweet as a Chick-fil-A iced tea. I mean, it's just awesome. <laughs> God is hooking it up, All right? So he gives them drinkable water. He then leads them to this place, and here this place, this place had 12 water springs and 70 palm trees, he leads them to water and shade, and the only thing I'm looking for, I'm asking for at this point, is where's the hammock? Because I want to live here. But, of course, they're not going to set up shop there. They continue to be led, and it says that 45 days later, they find themselves in this place called the Wilderness of Zin. And guess what? They're starving. I mean, they are starving. And what do you do when you're hungry? Or when you're hangry, you complain, right? And who do you complain to? Whoever's leading the trip, right? Whoever's in charge. So if it's your parents are in charge, you complain to your parents. If it's your coach, you complain to your coach. And so what do they do? They complain to Moses. And their complaint sounds a little like this. They say, Moses, we were better off as slaves in Egypt because in Egypt we had pot roasts and we had briskets. We had carne asada every night. And we had all you can eat carbs. We had all the carbs. We would have been better. 
as slaves, but we weren't going hungry. So they continued to grumble. And so what do you think God does with these people that he's just powerfully rescued and led them to shade and water? What do you think he does with their complaints? He meets their needs again. He shows grace. And so this is when God does this thing that is so unique in history where he sends down bread from heaven. And at first, they don't even know what it is. They've seen nothing like it, and they give it a name. They call it manna. You may have heard of manna. And so every morning, these, these people out in this wilderness, they have access to this bread. But God, he doesn't just stop there. That would have been enough. But God also in the evening, he's able to orchestrate quails, quails to come into camp where they could then have a source of meat. Friends, a hearty diet of meat and bread. And the only ones left complaining were the vegans in the group. (laughs) And so this is what God's doing. He's taking care of their needs. And once those are taken care of, once they have this system of daily provision, I believe God is then ready to do his first good work, his first lesson for the people. And if you think about it, this first lesson, given the circumstances, it could have been anything. I mean, he could have said, you know what? Um, we're out in the wilderness, shelter's important. We are going to teach the people how to build these awesome, hip, tiny homes like they have in Portland. Because shelter is going to be important out here in the wilderness. Or God could have said, you know what? They need to learn war tactics. We need to create an army because these people, they're going to face enemies out here. And they need to learn how to defend themselves. Or... I think God could have prioritized a a political system, a self-governing body that he would have handed to them so that they would have been efficient in how they related in a civilized society. God did not prioritize any of that, but he could have. I read in this text that God's first lesson was a four-letter word that we just know as rest. Rest. God prioritized rest in this time in history. And I believe he wants to remind us of this today. So everyone say rest. So God would teach him to rest. And um, I believe that by, by prioritizing this, God was in his second phase of, lib- of liberation. I began by making an argument. We know it's clear he liberated his people from actual slavery. But I believe that in him teaching the people how to rest, he was liberating them from an emotional, mental, social slavery that had come upon them. Twenty generations of living a life where a 24-hour quota was expected 
20 generations where a person's value was based on the level of productivity they can accomplish in a day. 20 generations of an authority that was oppressive and violent and evil. Could you imagine the level of trauma these people lived with? Could you imagine um, or, or could you blame them for not easily trusting authority? Could you, could you blame them for having a scarcity mindset, meaning I'm going to get what I can get because I, I got to survive each and every day. These were the types of people that God was shepherding and rescuing and renewing. And so I would describe it as the people in the desert, the people in the wilderness were adults who lived lives that were way too hurried, far too busy, way too obsessed with productivity. And I could only imagine that the youth and the children were far too anxious, far too insecure about what tomorrow might bring. And so consider this, busy adults, anxious children. Does that remind you of anyone? And so God knew that the first thing he needed to establish was this lifestyle of rest. And it's described in a very simple format. Work six days, rest the seventh. And so God's first gift to his people was the Sabbath. The Sabbath, have you heard that term? It's, it's a term that's kind of thrown around, and it might mean different things to different people. And so for the sake of our collective understanding, I want to work to define it. Now, the Sabbath is actually something that's unfolded in Scripture, meaning our understanding grows of the Sabbath. The further you go into the Bible, it's introduced in Genesis, but it is made most clear through the life of Jesus. But for the sake of us having a common understanding, I just want to focus on what the Sabbath meant for the people in Exodus chapter 16. And so according to Exodus 16:26, the Sabbath meant this: eliminate work. Stop work. And for them specifically, it meant you're not going to go out and gather that day. You're not going to bake, you're not going to boil this heavenly bread and daily meal. And so their understanding was for a 24-hour period, they could not do those things. They could not work. And so a few chapters later from Exodus 16, we see the Sabbath once again mentioned and more, close, uh, more clearly defined in the Ten Commandments. And many of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments, but I want us to read it again today. In Exodus 20, 9 through 11, it says this, 8 through 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you, should do, on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, 
nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I want to make an argument that the Sabbath is unique of all the rest of the commandments. Because if you really look at the commandments, a lot of them boil down to things that you're not supposed to do. For example, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't have other gods before the God of Israel. But the Sabbath, I want to argue, actually calls us to do something. Now, you might be thinking, well, Carlos, if the Sabbath means a stoppage of work, then shouldn't we define it as don't work? But if we consider the Ten Commandments here and look at verse 11, the emphasis is not on the stop from working, but the decision to rest. Why is that significant? Because the Sabbath is first introduced in Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth, and we know that God did not rest Because he was tired. God rested because he communicated to us that rest is holy. And therefore set an example that we need to live in this divine rhythm of work and rest. That is a decision. That is something that's unique that the Sabbath calls us to do. It calls us to rest. And I love love it because it's kind of like math, right? I, I, I used to love teaching math because... Math always told the truth. There was always an answer. And so it gives us a framework. It says it's scheduled one day, 24 hours, repeated every week. Rest. So here's what I want to say. One day of the week in our lives should look different from the rest. One day of the week should look different from the rest. You know, um, I have very much enjoyed starting my life here in Hillsborough, Oregon. I think Washington County is an amazing place to live. But prior to living in Hillsborough, Ilson and I, we started our lives in this neighborhood in Los Angeles called Valley Village. Valley Village. Isn't that cute? That's like a Hallmark town. And our love was like a Hallmark movie, really. That's my dad joke for the day, yeah. And so Valley Village, I don't expect you to know anything about Valley Village. Matter of fact, I, I, I lived in uh, the San Fernando Valley for, for 13 years, and just the last two years I discovered Valley Village. Valley Village is a two-mile radius that sits nestled in between uh, Van Nuys and North Hollywood. And so it's not this, it's, it's a very small little chunk of the valley, but here's the thing, there's something really distinct about Valley Village, and that's this. Valley Village has a hub of Orthodox Jewish families. And I didn't know that. But I quickly noticed that there was a significant presence of synagogues and Jewish-owned markets and restaurants. And I quickly realized that I loved living there. (laughs) Because you see... um, I could walk down the street to the corner to find one of my favorite restaurants in all of Los Angeles. It was called Tel Aviv. I didn't have to get on a plane to go. It was awesome. (laughs) And it was at Tel Aviv where I discovered my love for shawarma chicken. 
I mean, talk about some good stuff. And it just got better because in that same complex, I could just walk a few steps and find the best salmon tacos in Los Angeles. These salmon tacos at the Fish of the Valley restaurant was amazing. But it got better. Can you believe it got better? Because not only did I have my shawarma chicken and my salmon tacos, I'm making you hungry. I know. It's all part of this. It's all part of it. But I could walk across the street, just across the street, where I could go to Continental Kosher Bakery. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know what their rabbi prayed over these baked goods, but it made me feel closer to God. I'm telling you. This was holy ground that I was walking on. And so to say that my foodie soul was being fed, I mean, that was an understatement. Valley Village was awesome for my foodie soul. But what also started to happen was I was starting to have these unexpected moments of what I'm calling, dramatically calling, torment after finding these gems. And that's because there was a few times where I was like, I'm going to go get my salmon taco. I'm so excited. I'm ready for this. It was a long day at work. And so I go over and guess what? It was closed. And so what happens? What's the first thing you do when something's closed? Oh, some of you just look. No, I look at the time. I'm, I'm ready to argue, right? I look at the time, and it's only 5 or 6. And here's the thing, guys. Nothing in L.A. closes at 5 or 6. And so I'm, like, looking through the window, maybe trying to find an employee, like, come on, please open up. Maybe it's a mistake. <laughs> but this happened enough times where I began to realize that I was asking the wrong question. The question wasn't, what time was it? The better question was, what day was it? Right? Because you see, my neighbors, my Orthodox Jewish neighbors, they, they were committed. They, they, they made it part of their life to observe the Sabbath. And for them, the Sabbath began on Friday at sundown. And so beginning Friday at sundown, Valley Village looked, felt different. And everyone was impacted. Whether you were observing the Sabbath or not, that neighborhood changed for 24 hours. And the beautiful thing is uh, on the morning of the Sabbath, on their Shabbat, I would see families walking around in their, in their really wonderful attire as they walked to and from their synagogues. And this was such a visible difference from the rest of the week. Any Saturday morning, we could step outside and we can see our Jewish neighbors observing the Sabbath. I know that in the evenings, things got quiet. I didn't expect to see crowds in the evenings, and I have to imagine it's because these same families, they were having these Shabbat dinners, these Shabbat meals that they had prepared hours or days in advance before sundown on Friday. What I'm trying to say is that the Sabbath changed the neighborhood one day of the week. Life looked different. Rest one day, work the other six. 
And so that's the Sabbath, and this is what God has called his people and determined that they needed the most. God knew that they needed rest and a rhythm of rest. And so I want to I ask the question and explore with you, why rest? Why would God prioritize rest? And I want to offer a few suggestions. The first is this, that rest is an exercise of trust. I changed the language there. Rest is a demonstration or it's an exercise of trust. And if you look at the story in Exodus 16, I want you to go home and read it because the details matter. Because God has orchestrated this really detailed exercise in building trust. What do I mean by that? He says, hey, in day one through five, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go out. I need you to collect this bread, but only connect, collect enough for each member of your family to eat that day. And don't keep any left over. And what do they do? Some kept it left over. And what happened? It stunk and it grew maggots. That was the reference. They had to learn the hard way. God was serious. Those first five days only take enough for a day. But then on day six, he says, on day six, I want you to double up. I want you to double up, and I want you to eat as much as you can, and all the leftovers I want you to keep on the seventh. And that was an exercise of trust, because what was happening to the leftovers day one through five? It was going bad. Do you see that? So now they had to trust that any leftovers going into day seven would remain uh, eatable. But there's more because God then says on the seventh day, you are not to gather. On the seventh day, I need you to rest. And what do we see the people doing on the seventh day? They went out. Only to what? Find nothing. And so that might seem um, and so I, I explain that because what God is doing is he's allowing them to exercise their trust in him. That God would provide what they needed each and every day. And the days that they did not work, the days that they did not gather, God was still providing for that day. Can you see God building trust for a people who had no reason to trust authority. Authority had been damaged. And here was God giving them an exercise on trust. The next reason why I believe God prioritized rest is that rest gives room to do good. Rest inspires doing Good. And so I shared that the Sabbath is something that's unpacked in Scripture beginning in Genesis. And then Jesus always gets the last word. And so here's Jesus, and he steps up to the micro microphone to share his thoughts on the Sabbath. And he makes some big claims. He says he declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus also says, I am the meaning of the day. So Jesus doesn't just affirm the Sabbath, but he says, I'm the Lord. I am the deity that brought it into existence. And I represent it most accurately. 
And so Matthew Sleeth in this great book that I highly recommend called 24-6 wrote this. To walk with Jesus through the Gospels and watch him work is to see the Sabbath restored to its original intent. On the Sabbath, this is what Jesus does. He casts out demons. He heals scoliosis. He shrinks leprosy or cures leprosy. He unlocks paralysis of the hand. And he lowers a high fever. And so Jesus, what he essentially does for you and I is he shows us how to live on the Sabbath. And so if you are like me and you struggle with a day off, I'd be one of the first to admit that days off can be hard. Because the thought of a full day every week not producing not doing something can sometimes feel stressful to me. So it might be helpful to reframe how we think about the Sabbath. A, a, the Sabbath is a full day of rest, um, of not working, but it's not a full day of not doing anything. I want to distinguish that rest is not idleness. This is... Um, this could be a misunderstanding that God is not calling us to a 24-hour period of being lazy. That is not the command. Because we see that idleness or being a sluggard uh, is something that's spoken really clearly against in the Bible and uh, in Proverbs and other parts of the Bible. And so we're not having a God's word contradict on this topic. So the Sabbath is not a day to not do anything, but to intentionally focus on doing what's most important in God's eyes. The Sabbath is the day that we want to focus to live as Jesus did. And so rest then becomes not nothing, but it becomes something. Again, the focus on the Sabbath is not on what you don't do, but what, on you, what you decide to do with that 24-hour period. And so Jesus cleared up any misunderstandings in Matthew 12. And I want to go there. Uh, and before we read Matthew 12, verses 9 through 14, what you should know is that Jesus had, he had some haters, right? And his haters, uh, one of his group of haters were the Pharisees. And this was a sect of, of religious Jewish leaders. And they became very critical of Jesus, particularly when he allowed his disciples to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. Because according to them, picking a head of grain was work. And that was against the law. And so they challenged Jesus when they saw the disciples uh, do this. And so Jesus interacts with them and then he performs this good work, which we're going to read beginning in verse 9. It says, Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted 
how they might kill Jesus. It's kind of an intense reaction, isn't it? But I want us to focus on the underlying question, and that's this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath then becomes a designated day for doing good. And that's meant to inspire an additional six days of doing good. And so according to author Sleeth again, it may be against the law to harvest grain on the Sabbath, but it is never wrong to feed the hungry. The laws against working were made to benefit the people, not the other way around. And so it is on the Sabbath that it is God's will that we be merciful because that's doing good. It is on the Sabbath that we allow the hungry to eat because that's doing good. It is on the Sabbath that we visit those that are sick and pray for healing because that's doing good. And so on this 24-hour day that we get to do weekly, we focus on doing good, not just for our souls, but for others. So rest gives room for doing good. So I want to encourage you, as we begin to wrap up, I want to encourage you to give it a try. If your week, every day of the week, looks the same, I want you to practice an intentional 24 hours that look different, a focus on doing good. Now, I want to give you the freedom to choose that day. I know that there's arguments on when this day should happen. For a lot of us today, Sunday is our Sabbath. I think that's a really good day. For me and my family, uh, we find that Friday works better. And so that's our Sabbath. And here's the thing. We're ready to change that even week to week. What matters is that there's one day where we're going to focus on rest and doing good. And so um, there are some things that we've done as a new family to establish this rhythm. Uh, For those of you who know our family, uh, we are a family of three with a 21-year-old who is growing each and every day, 21-month-old. Whoa. That's different. Sometimes it feels, does it feel that way? Yeah. Um, so we've done this, 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 this really uh, small thing but significant thing for our family, and that's that on, on the Sabbath, when it lands on a Friday, mostly it lands on a Friday, what we do is we do this holy practice holy practice of making pancakes. That has become our Sabbath routine. It reminds me that it's the Sabbath. And you might ask, well, why why pancakes? Well, obviously, I love food. Half of my sermon was about food, right? (laughs) So food makes me happy, and I think food is holy. But not only do I love food, and particularly pancakes, but uh, because we commit to making them from scratch, it really slows me down. I don't know about you, most mornings I want to just get to my task list. But on the Sabbath, I allow myself to sleep in, and I allow myself to make these pancakes where we put bananas and blueberries, and we warm up the syrup. And what it does for me 
because of this sweetness and this enjoyable experience is it makes me look forward to the Sabbath. I love the Sabbath. I love the pancakes that we make on the Sabbath. And it's a whole family experience. If I'm cooking, Elsian's watching Charlie, and maybe we switch off and she does cleanup, and we're kind of working together as a team. And Charlie's contribution is quite simple. Charlie just eats as much pancakes as she can stuff, but it is a beautiful thing. You can decide what your Sabbath looks like. What matters is that there's rest and play and good works. And so I'm going to ask the band to come up. And we began discovering in our time together that God did this, this incredible thing in Exodus where he sent bread from heaven. And this met a real need for the people. These people needed daily nourishment. But I want you to understand that that sending of bread, that was also symbolic of a greater work that God would eventually accomplish in the future. For this manna was a foreshadowing of the sending of his son from heaven. And so like the manna that was sent that was mysteriously and miraculously appeared before the people, Jesus was also sent a bit mysteriously and definitely miraculously. And like manna was this essential need for the people in the wilderness for their survival, I believe, and many of you agree, that Jesus was sent as an essential need for our human survival. And so Jesus does this thing where he identifies himself as the bread of heaven. He associates himself with the God of the Israelites. He does this in John 6 when he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, they ate ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. That was only a temporary relief. But here is, and I have to imagine Jesus pointed to himself. Here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And so I want you to understand that to eat the flesh of Jesus is symbolic of putting our faith in the work of salvation. Eating his flesh or eating the bread is believing Jesus for what he did and still promises to do. And so we eat his flesh every time we choose his way above ours. And just like manna led them to learning how to rest, Jesus also, he invites us to rest. You see, Jesus is the Sabbath, and so he makes this invitation in Matthew 11 that many of you have heard. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the Sabbath. 
in him we can find what we're looking for. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hey, you can find the best massage place, the best resort, and have a relaxing weekend, but without Jesus, you're not going to get true rest. Jesus gives a rest that you and I can't fabricate. And he's inviting us to enter into this relationship that results in rest. So I want to invite you to um, bow your heads as we pray together. And as we pray and prepare to sing a song, I just want to speak to the people in the room who are weary. To those who've, man, you want to talk about a seven-day work week. Carlos, I've had, I've had a 30-day work month. I've had, I've had a, a two-year season where I feel nothing but pressure. Well, I believe that God has brought you here today or you're watching online because he wants to invite you into his Sabbath. He wants to be your Sabbath. He wants you to learn his way, his rhythm, that you would be able to confidently walk in him and not have to do, 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 but you would be able to rest And so if that's you today, the God of the universe is inviting you to learn from him, to follow him, to be in relationship with him, and to have rest for your souls. And so, Father, we ask for every heart and mind in the room or watching online that if we've not committed our our souls to you, our hearts to you, that we would do so in this moment, that we would, like the Israelites, eventually learn to trust you, knowing that there isn't a day where we go without being satisfied in you, that you provide every need down to our very souls. And so for every person in this room that wants your rest, God, would you respond to them? Would you reveal yourself to them this week? Would you show yourself as the Lord of the Sabbath? And for the rest of us, if we've missed out on this gift, this weekly practice of doing good, of focusing on you to inspire the other six, may we begin in this season to embrace the gift of the Sabbath. Thank you that you invite us into not work but into rest. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.